Hello, beautiful nerds. It's Roman Mars. Once a year, we at Radiotopia invite our most dedicated listeners to become sustaining donors of Radiotopia. I look forward to this time because the way we raise money is a big part of who we are. We want to make sure there's a path for great audio stories to be made that aren't owned by anyone but the person who made it. We do that by gathering tens of thousands of people to pitch in just a little to create the media that we all deserve. This year, we have great stuff to say thank you, including a brand new Radiotopia challenge coin to fill out your collection, plus enamel pins and hoodies all adorned with the new Radiotopia logo. To be a part of this new media and podcast revolution, or or maybe you just want to see the logo, go to radiotopia.fm. Thanks. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. The night of February 27th, 2010, Luis Enriquez was getting home from his job at a lumber factory in Constitución, Chile. It was around three in the morning. I was watching TV with my wife and a neighbor, and all of a sudden, we started feeling the earth shake. And it was just getting stronger and stronger and stronger to the point that we couldn't stand up. Producer Sam Greenspan, translating for Luis. Luis was in an earthquake, a bad one. When the shaking finally stopped, he was relieved to see that his wife and their two kids were all fine. But Luis knew they were still in danger. Because in Chile, everyone is taught from childhood that after an earthquake hits, the first thing you do is get to higher ground. Which is what Luis and his family did. They got in their car and they sped to the top of a nearby hill. From its peak, Luis could look down from the hillside to where the river Maule met the Pacific Ocean. You could see it happening. You could see it super clearly. You could see the waves coming into the city. The earthquake that Luis is describing was tremendous, a magnitude 8.8, the second biggest that the world had seen in the past 50 years. The quake and ensuing tsunami completely crushed the seaside town of Constitución, Chile, where Luis lives. By the time it was over, more than 500 people were dead, and 80% of the city's buildings were ruined. As part of a relief effort, an architecture firm called Elemental was hired to create a master plan for the city, which included new housing for people displaced in the disaster. But the structures that Elemental delivered were a radical and somewhat controversial approach towards housing. They gave people half a house. Picture a simple two-story home with a pitched roof, a square with a triangle on top, basically how a kid would draw a house. Only in these, there's a wall that runs down the middle, from the peak of the roof all the way to the ground, splitting the house in half. One side of the house is finished and the other side. The other side is a completely empty space. There's a roof and an exterior wall, but the rest is just an open void. The architecture firm behind these houses, the Santiago-based Elemental, has made a name for themselves building these half-a-homes. And not just as disaster relief, either. To date, Elemental has done about 10 low-income housing projects across Chile, all designed so that the homes would be largely unfinished when the residents moved in. And the response from the architectural community has been immense. In 2016, the firm's founder, Alejandro Aravena, was awarded the Pritzker Prize, the top prize in architecture. In their jury citation, the Pritzker Architecture Prize said that, quote, 
Alejandro Aravena epitomizes the revival of a more socially engaged architect, especially in his long-term commitment to tackling the global housing crisis and fighting for a better urban environment for all. This for building disaster victims and other poor people unfinished homes. To understand where these half-built houses came from, you have to understand them as an attempt to solve the problem of global urban migration. Over the past several decades, people the world over have been migrating from the countryside to cities. The draw of the city was creating this problem. So the result is squatting. This is George Gatoni, an architect who grew up all around Latin America, mostly in El Salvador. George saw firsthand what happens when a population outgrows its supply of buildings. The housing deficit of San Salvador, the capital, was something about 10,000 units a year and growing. The backlog of people that had no services, no, it, was, it was unbelievable. George wanted to help solve this problem. But I was struggling with how to make a house affordable. In the 1970s, George heard about a new master's program at MIT. A program called Urban Settlement Design in Developing Countries. At MIT, George found a mentor in a professor named John F.C. Turner. So John F.C. Turner, a British urban planner, was spearheading this idea that people can build for themselves. In a 1972 essay called Housing as a Verb, Turner made the case that housing ought not be a static unit that is packaged and just handed over to people. Rather, housing should be conceived of as an ongoing project wherein residents are co-creators. And from this thesis, Turner helped promote an idea. This idea that was emerging, this sites and services idea. Sites and services, also sometimes called incremental building. It basically means instead of building people completed homes, governments should just build the key parts of a home that people have the hardest time building on their own, like concrete foundations, insulation, plumbing, electrical wiring. And then get the government to provide services to those sites. Roads, drainage, sewers, or pit latrines, whatever the case may be. Garbage collection, you've got to route your trucks to the schools. Thus, gradually over time, people start to turn their basic sites into suitable housing with materials they source themselves on their own terms. What people have to, to donate of their own is labor, the cost of labor. And the cost of materials to expand. But in the end, they own what they build. It's their investment. They have the ability. And governments cannot build as well as quickly and in a way that makes sense to these households. Since finishing his studies at MIT in the 1970s, George has done these kinds of incremental building projects all over the world, in Latin America, Kenya, Indonesia. And these projects can take different forms. Sometimes it's just giving people a concrete pad with utility hookups. Sometimes it's just giving people a one-room house with a kitchen and bathroom and the expectation that they'll build extra rooms onto it. It sounds odd, but believe me, it works. These ideas that George Catoni and his contemporaries at MIT pioneered, that governments can support people building for themselves and then let them own what they build, began to spread through the developing world. And so when the architecture firm Elemental got their first commission to do low-income housing in Chile, they took the ideas from incremental housing as points of departure. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't create the idea. Actually, we import that. <laughs> to make something that can be improved by time. This is Juan Ignacio Cerda, one of the principal architects at Elemental. 
Serda told me that in 2002, Elemental got a commission to build 100 units of low-income housing in a city in northern Chile called Iquique. And they had to deliver it on a tight budget. $7,500 unit. With only $7,500 allocated per household, the most straightforward and cost-effective way to house all 100 families was to cram everyone into big block-style apartments. When they hear, what about blocks? They said, if you dare to propose a block, we start a hunger strike because it's the worst thing ever. According to Juan Ignacio Cerda, the community threatened a hunger strike because an apartment block would be extremely limiting. Sure, they were living in a slum before, but at least they had control over their own space. They could make expansions and adjustments when they wanted to. But with a block-style housing project, they'd be confined to a small, static space. Which is worse because you are not able to expand the house. And so what Elmental came up with were tall, rectangular houses separated by empty space. Each unit was just big enough to meet Chile's minimum standards for low-income housing. And then the residents could, on their own time, however they wanted, expand into the empty space adjacent to their home. Elemental spent the early 2000s iterating on this concept, building homes that just met the basic legal requirements for low-income housing in Chile, but with room to grow. And then in 2012, after the earthquake in Constitución, Elemental got a commission to help create a new master plan for the city, which included creating a new neighborhood full of incremental buildings. It would be located on one of the tallest hills in the city and would be called Via Verde. Okay, we are on our way up to Via Verde and Constitución. Oh, wow, here it is. This is it right here. Wow, oh, it's really big. Sam went out to see Via Verde with producer Martina Castro. Yeah, should we drive around first? Yeah. To get to Via Verde, you drive straight up one of the tallest hills in Constitución. You pass a traditional-looking apartment complex, also built to house people after the 2010 quake. Once you're on top of the hill, you get some just staggering views of the town, the ocean, and the river Maule below. It's like a whole bunch of these little boxes on a hillside. Looking over, that's the river Maule. Via Verde is made of neat rows of simple two-story houses. Half of each house is identical. Same windows, same color, kind of a farmhouse red. The other half of each house, though, is completely different. They have different doors, different windows, or pieces of tarp where windows will go. And in some houses, half the house has nothing there at all. It's just like half the house is missing. Um, and And then there are plenty of houses that people have built out. When people get their houses, the side that comes pre-built is pretty bare bones. The walls are unpainted sheetrock, and the floors are unfinished concrete and plywood. The kitchen comes with just a sink, no stove, no refrigerator, no cabinets. The houses are spartan, to say the least, but they are habitable, practical, and well-insulated. Martina Castro and I spent a couple of days walking around Via Verde, talking to residents. And it's there that we met Luis Enriquez, the earthquake survivor we heard from earlier. When we met him, Luis and his wife were outside, working on a gravel walkway to their home. Luis invited us in. Martina translates. So when you, when you moved in, what were the most important things that you wanted to do right away? Cuando se mudaron, ¿cuáles eran las primeras cosas que querían hacer? Eh, ampliar, ampliar, porque igual era reducido. Entonces la, la, la idea era ampliar para poder estar cómodos. 
Yeah, just make it bigger because it was a really small space. So we had to build it out to be comfortable. With help from his wife and his brother, who also lives in Via Verde, Luis laid concrete on the empty side of the house to make a floor and put up exterior walls and flooring for the second story. None of them had really done construction before, but they had direction from workshops on building techniques that Elemental helped facilitate. The homes also come with a user manual with directions for how to expand the house. And expansions can be done with standard size building materials, so residents don't have to pay lots of money for custom-cut pieces of lumber. So far, Luis has focused his efforts on just getting the house to be big enough to accommodate his family. And so inside, the walls are still unpainted. The downstairs floors are still just unfinished concrete, and upstairs it's unfinished plywood. Luis knows they've got a long way to go on their home. But he doesn't just see the bare walls and coarse floor. He sees what it all can become. If and when the Enriquez family does have tiling and carpet and paint and baseboard on the walls, it'll be way nicer than anything that they ever could have afforded on their own, or what they could have normally gotten through state-funded low-income housing programs. And so now, Luis is the owner of a four-bedroom home that keeps out the cold, won't get flooded, and won't fall down in an earthquake. You know, my wife and I, we've had tough lives. So finding out that we were going to be owners of our own house was just incredible. Not everyone I talked to at Via Verde was enthusiastic about having to build their own home. And some thought Elemental's contractors could have done a better job. But for the most part, people there seemed really happy with their homes, even people who hadn't expanded theirs at all. One resident, a single mom named Camila Hernandez Rodriguez, hadn't made any additions yet. Yeah, so of course, you know, one's, one dreams and you think that you're going to just have everything ready all, all at once. And so I wanted to, you know, build out the house and everything. But then I just focused on doing small things first because obviously I couldn't do that right away. Most people in Via Verde are further along with their expansions than Camila, and everyone seems to have some project or another. Some residents have even opted to use their extra space to start businesses, like little stores that sell bread and candy and cell phone minutes. The feeling I got from residents is that they felt invested in Via Verde. They liked living there, and they felt safe. It all kind of made me wonder, why haven't we seen this approach in the U.S.? I don't think this could work in the U.S., There's a lot of things going on here which are really innovative, and there's a lot of things where things could go wrong. This is Dr. Jennifer Stoloff, a researcher with the consulting firm Econometrica. Before that, I was a social science analyst at HUD in the Office of Policy Development and Research for about 14 years. Dr. Stoloff is an expert at evaluating government programs, particularly those that pertain to housing. She's also an historian of public housing in the U.S., I told Dr. Stoloff about the Via Verde project and sent her some pictures, and she says, yeah, it does kind of align with the U.S. ethos of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It is very bootstrappy. It's true. But it's also very risky. I mean, and I mean in a safety way, not just in a financial way. It is both. First off, someone could get hurt building out their house, which means you'd have to deal with both a medical and a legal emergency. In the States, you know, there'd be litigation issues, right? I mean, if you were working, building your floor or ceiling and you fell down in the States, maybe you would sue the developer. But for Dr. Stoloff, the biggest hurdle to an incremental building project working in the U.S. isn't a matter of safety or legality. 
it would be an embarrassment, right? So the United States of America can only build poor people half a house? We would be ashamed of ourselves. <laughs> Even though, in fact, that might end up providing way more people with adequate housing at the end of the day. But we couldn't do it. It's like we'd lose face. Because unlike Chile, the United States does have the money. And perhaps also unlike Chile. We don't like to spend money on poor people. <laughs> we think everybody should be able to find their own way out of poverty. And it's just not true, but that is the expectation. And we are not in a scarcity economy, and we could afford to give people an entire house. But by and large, we don't. For the U.S., it's not a matter of scarcity. It's a matter of values. Elemental, however, has come to see scarcity as a tool, a tool which Juan Ignacio Cerda finds vital. I'm sure that in the States, everything have rules and controls, so you don't leave room to all those new things that came up from the Latin world. That obviously come, comes from scarcity. So if you, had, if you were doing this project in, in Constitución, and let's just say at the very last minute, they go, okay, we're going to double your budget, would you, would you then have made everyone full houses? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's I've never happened. And Theoretically, but if it, money wasn't a restraint, would you still want to build the way you do? It's a good thing to deliver a whole house, but uh, if you give me double the money, I keep the house as it is, and I improve with all that money the public space surrounding the house, the neighborhood. Providing the infrastructure that people can't provide themselves, like parks and libraries and public transit, is at the very root of the sites and services approach. Building half a house might be the best way to make a community whole. 99% Invisible was produced this week by Sam Greenspan with Katie Mingle, Sharif Youssef, Kurt Kolstad, Avery Truffleman, Emmett Fitzgerald, Taryn Mazza, Delaney Hall, and me, Roman Mars. This sites and services approach is near and dear to my heart because in a way, it's how Radiotopia operates. We provide a platform, the infrastructure, and a baseline of support, and the producers build their house their way, and what they build, they keep. I am not their boss. I can't take what they built away from them. It's a good system, and it means something to own what you build. You can keep this idea going strong by joining us at Radiotopia.fm. And you should hurry, because we have a challenge like right out of the gate. If you get a 1,000 donors by the end of Wednesday, October 12th, our friends at Podster Magazine will give us an additional $10,000. Podster is this new bi-monthly magazine. It's about podcasts. It's for people who love podcasts, like, like you and me. It's not like an industry paper. They interviewed me, and it's one of my favorite articles about the show. You can sign up for a free subscription at podstermagazine.com. But to be a part of this Podster challenge, We need you to go now to Radiotopia.fm. It doesn't matter how much you give. Every donation counts towards the challenge. Thank you so much. Special thanks this week to Austin McCann, Carla Palma, Martina Castro, Dave Humphrey, Solampe Bernal, Marcela Espinosa, Ricardo Segundo Quiero Valdez, Maria Antonieta Bianchi Diaz, Christiane Martinez, and Francesca Moroni. And special thanks to O.K. Akumi, whose chill music you are listening to right now. We are a project of 91.7 KALW in San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible is also provided by the Bose Build Speaker Cube. Speaker Cube. Build and customize your own durable, high-performance Bluetooth speaker. From Bose, the audiophile's first choice in speakers and headphones. Open, open, open. 
opening. Build Bose is an educational engineering kit that lets kids eight and up build their own custom Bluetooth speaker and other projects. The mega awesome Maslow speaker. The first project Carver, Maslow, and I tried was the jumping electromagnet. Three, two, one. These are actual sounds of actual joy. It can be built and rebuilt and teaches kids and parents the inner workings of speakers. For more information, go to build.bose.com. That's B-U-I-L-D dot B-O-S-E dot com. 99% Invisible is supported in part by Casper, an online retailer of premium, obsessively engineered mattresses at a shockingly fair price. It arrives vacuum sealed in this big box and you cut it open and air rushes in and the kids in the house scream with delight. And when all the excitement is over, you'll have the best mattress of your life. They have a risk-free trial and return policy so you can try sleeping on your Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. The mattresses are made in America and pricing is just $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. 99% Invisible listeners can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash 99PI and using the promo code 99PI at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. And finally, from the beginning, 99% Invisible and Radiotopia from PRX have been supported by our donors from all over the world, the Knight Foundation and MailChimp. 12 million people use MailChimp to connect with their customers, market their products, and grow their businesses every day. We use our MailChimp newsletter to tell more stories that we can't fit on the podcast. MailChimp is like no other company I've ever experienced. They're good to the core, and they believe in helping their clients reach people and tell their story. They've certainly been responsible for us being able to tell our stories. To find out how to send better email of your own, go to MailChimp.com. The last thing you have to remember is Radiotopia.fm. Become a donor and get the new Radiotopia Challenge coin. We have hoodies and enamel pins. Get in on the Podster Challenge that ends tomorrow and make sure that independent, producer-driven podcasting has a place in the world at Radiotopia. Join us at Radiotopia. FM. Radio Tokyo.